All right, we are on page uh, 112. As I said, this has actually been a three-part series because this is really long. And we're going to round out our uh, our semester with this. Next week, next Tuesday, is, uh, is breakfast. And uh, you'll get an opportunity to share how Grace and Granite has impacted your life, whatever testimony that, that you want to give um, in between uh, chomps on a biscuit or whatever whatever it is. So we're going to meet at the same time, and we'll send out an email with some of those uh, some of those details. When we get back, um, after our Christmas break, we're going to be in sanctification. We're going to be in session three, but we still have one lesson left on, uh, on an apologetic for biblical uh, soul care. And we're talking about man's condition. We laid the foundation first, right? We talked about man's condition. What does the Bible say about our condition? Are we, are we born as a clean slate? Um, and then our environment writes whatever it is on our hearts? And the answer to that is no. Are we born uh, partially good? The answer to that is is no. Um, so we looked at our condition because if you don't understand your condition, then then some of these other um, methodologies, if you will, are are going to sound uh, sound appealing. So you have to go to the source. You have to go to the Creator, which is which is the second part of of the, of the foundation that we laid: the total depravity of man, and then the sufficiency of of Scripture. If God is our creator, and he is, and he made us, he's God and we're not, then, then he knows our condition. And he also knows the answer to, to solve whatever that condition is. And we learn about our own depravity from the Bible, and then the Bible gives us the answers uh, for, uh, for fixing that, whatever it is. And it's, it's totally sufficient. So we're going to talk today about how um, there are certain models that, that try to integrate knowledge or truth, things that may even be helpful, um, and, and why that's, that's illegitimate, and why that can lead you down a, a bad road. And before we get there, we're going to watch a little video. Um, this is Heath Lambert. He used to be the president of ACBC. Um, the uh, Association of Biblical Counselors, and um, he is, uh, I think he's now the pastor, isn't he, the pastor of uh, First Baptist in Jacksonville, um, and somebody else has taken over, but this is a really good little video, uh, it's only three minutes, about the difference between biblical counseling and Christian counseling, or what we might call an integrationist approach, because that's what we're going to talk about uh, um, today. have uh, been debating about these issues for about the last 40 or 50 years. There are some Christians who disagree with the case that I'm going to try to make, that uh, the Bible is God's word to us telling us how to solve our counseling-related problems. Um, there's been a massive group of Christians who have believed that, hey, the Bible has a lot of good things to say. Uh, but there's also all these wonderful things to say in secular psychology, and we need to put them both together. There's a number of different categories of people who do that. Some people call themselves integrationists. Some people call themselves Christian psychologists. We don't need to sort all that out right now. I'm just going to generally call that big group of people who wants to get some helpful resources from the Bible and other helpful resources from secular psychology. We'll just call those Christian counselors. And there are a lot of areas of agreement between biblical counselors and Christian counselors. Um, biblical counselors and Christian counselors are conservative Christians. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the authority of the word of God. Uh, we care for hurting people. We want to love people. We, we look at people who are hurting and in pain, and we want to help them. Um, both sides believe that psychologists can say things and make observations that are helpful and true. A lot of people accuse biblical counselors of rejecting everything that comes from secular psychology. That's not true, and we're going to talk about that in the lectures ahead. 
Everybody agrees with that. Uh, we also, both sides agree that secular psychology gets some things wrong. A lot of people critique Christian counselors for saying, well, you just take everything secular psychologists say and you don't evaluate it critically. That is also not true. Uh, Christian counselors are willing to throw out the findings of secular psychology when they can be proven to be unbiblical. Both sides also believe that not all problems are counseling problems. Everybody agrees that people can have medical problems that need physical care from a medical doctor and from other medical professionals. Um, but there are significant areas of disagreement between the two camps. Uh, one significant area of disagreement is whether it's necessary to use secular resources in counseling. Christian counselors are dying on the hill that it is necessary to use secular resources in counseling because the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Biblical counselors, on the other hand, are dying on the hill, that we really don't need secular resources in counseling because the Bible really does tell us everything we need to know about how to help people with their counseling problems. And that gets to the second area of disagreement, and it's about whether the Bible is a sufficient resource for counseling. The contention of Christian counselors for more than 50 years has been the Bible's a precious book, but it's not sufficient for counseling. And the contention of biblical counselors has been for that time that the Bible is a precious book and it is sufficient for counseling. And so that is the line of debate that we've got to sort out. But here's what I want you to understand right now. That debate is theological. Uh, that debate has to do with whether God reveals himself significantly to secular people to be able to help troubled folks. And that debate has to do with our understanding of the word of God. Does the word of God include the kinds of information that we need to help people who are struggling with problems? That's a theological investigation, and that's what we're going to do as we examine these issues together. So Dr. Lambert says at, the very, says at the very end something I think that he really summarizes it. There are plenty of places that you can find agreement. Um, whenever you talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the position that, that, that we think that the Bible teaches, that doesn't mean that everything every believe, unbeliever says or everything that you can gain from a secular, uh, you know, from secular society is all bad. Um, it's it's just what's the source? It's a theological a theological discussion, and so that's the reason we started with laying the foundation from a biblical from a biblical standpoint. What is man's condition, and is the Bible? What does the Bible say about about itself? Is it totally sufficient? And then even the word biblical soul care is is important. Now he talked about counseling. And, and, and what did we say – what is counseling? I mean I understand that, say, something like what Brother Mark does maybe in a, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in a sticky wicket or a very difficult situation. Maybe somebody with, with the experience that he has is really helpful to deal with, you know, with, um, with, with, with sin patterns that, that have habituated over a long period of time. Um, but what's, what's the term that we used – a biblical term for uh, for counseling, discipleship. So don't hear biblical counseling and think, oh, that's for Mark or for somebody else. This is something that every Christian needs to do. It has to be able to do, it. and every Christian Christian is equipped to do it. You are to care for the souls of others, and what do you use to care for the souls of others? Well, you use the Bible. You use God's Word. It is it is sufficient because the Creator sees us and knows us and has given us a, a book to care for, for our souls. Think about how, how horrible of a thought that it is that God has given us a book, but it is not sufficient to deal with the issues of the soul. Now again, even as you heard Dr. Landrut say, doesn't mean that you go to the Bible to, to solve uh, you know, your, your, uh, um, your gallbladder. Or whatever it might be, there are medical issues that that need to be dealt with. We're talking about the soul. We're talking about uh, the vast, vast majority of, of of issues that fall into this realm of psychology or Christian counseling, counseling in general issues, emotional issues as people would call them, uh, mental health issues as people 
would, would, would call them. And so what we're going to talk about today is, is how if you set up a construct where the Bible is here and then there's another authority over here being mental health or, or whatever it might be, we're going to see that one of those has to dominate and what typically ends up happening is the psychiatry or the mental health ends up dominating, becoming uh, primary, and then the Bible becomes secondary, um, and it's a reorientation of, uh, of authorities. So look at page uh, 111 just for, uh, just for review. We're talking about a polemic against plausible-sounding alternatives. And we covered last week psychology in many of its forms. So other claims to care for the soul offer competing explanations, and notice this, as to the first causes for the maladies that we experience. The Bible is not arguing. We're not arguing that your experiences or your trauma or your circumstances in life don't affect you. They do. I mean, I came to Christ whenever I was 24, and I grew up in, in a... In a in a home with a mother that followed Christ and a and a father who was a who was a good man, um, but I was not taught to solve my problems biblically. Um, I went to public school. I was a pagan. Um, I participated to my shame in all of the things that 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 was around me, and I tasted the bitter fruit of of a life of of sin. It, as you know, my testimony, Tracy and I were just a few weeks away from divorce whenever, whenever I was converted. And as you also hear me say, when that happened, when Jesus became Lord and Master, that didn't mean that there was a pumpkin outside of the church to whisk us off to the castle, and it was Cinderella, and you know, and all of that. We spent eight years laying a foundation of how we relate to one another, how we viewed life, how we how we put our home together. All of that was based on a secular perspective. Um, and some of those some of those behaviors were learned. They were learned from how we saw our parents relate. You you have a dysfunctional family right now. And you come from a dysfunctional family because you're dysfunctional. You're sinners. But that's not the, uh, that's not determinative. That's what we're arguing. It, it doesn't mean that those situations don't affect you. It just means that they, they don't determine. They're not the final say in, in what happens. God um, can, can transform, and he has the, he has the answer. So the, the reason I'm pointing this out is because this very first line, there are other claims that offer first causes for the maladies that we experience. Why? Do we have emotional issues? Well, psychology in its many in its many forms. Look at Freud, the classic psychoanalytic approach with, you know, with uh, trying to uncover underlying motives. All of these are in search for a blame. They're in search for the first cause. Why do you have the issue that you do? Adler, um, it, it's you know it it's not the. Uh, um, you know the unconscious mind, but it is sociological effects that that, that are the that are are to blame. Um, how we relate to others, how we didn't relate to others. Skinner with behaviorism, you're all conditioned. We you treat bad behavior by by learning new behavioral patterns. Um, thinking, emotion, moods are too subjective. We talked about Ellis and the rational emotive theory. Um, this is really all about people having erroneous beliefs, so you change the way that they, the way they think. Rogers, this is all humanism, free will, basic goodness of man. Then Ackerman, your problem is your family. All of these are in search for a, a blame, and, and they give first causes for the maladies. So, now is it possible that your family upbringing affected you? Sure. Is it possible that erroneous beliefs are part of the problem? Sure. Is it possible to have conditioned behavior? You learned how to do things? Sure. The Bible talks about putting off and, and, and putting on. Is it possible that your, you know, your socioeconomic status, you, you were raised in, you know, in a really bad you know, situation, you were poor, impoverished, whatever, 
can those things have an effect on you? And the answer is yes, but they're not the primary issue, and they're not determinative. They don't determine. They don't make you a victim to where you can never overcome those things. They're not the first cause. They may be a factor, but the Bible gives us the answers that that um, these set of beliefs try to try to explain. Look at A. Regardless of the form, common to all of them is a set of beliefs offering to explain man's nature and makeup. Are we depraved or inherently good? All of those above seek to. They come from a secular worldview, uh, leaving God out of the out of the picture. They seek to describe man's problems. Why do we do what we do? Well, I I, I do what I do because fill in the blank. I was traumatized. Um, Whenever I was, whenever I was young, they seek to to explain who's responsible for for the problem. Is it my unconscious self? Is it society? Is it behavioral conditioning? Is it bad thinking? How do I treat my problems? The the answer to is found in um, in some methodology. What's guilt? Who's guilty? How do I remove guilt? Um, and then ultimately, who is able to who's able to counsel? We talked about how psychiatry attacks the priesthood of the of the believer, and that's not an argument against training. You know, we believe in in training. You need to be skilled. It's a command to know how to wield the the word of of God. And so we left off with these how these world philosophies are actually a competing religion. Today we're going to talk about a psychologized gospel. Look at two on page one twelve. Now, what what do we mean by a psychologized gospel? We're arguing in in a. It's infiltrated the evangelical church. Can you give me an example of how psychology has attached itself to the church to to the gospel. You're actually practicing some discernment here, so this is a good thing. We have to train ourselves to do this. Yep, Rich. I, I just the how the positive thinking okay. can change your circumstances, just the way you think or the way you approach things. Um, yeah, the Robert Schuller type yeah. of roots to viewing life will just change change things for you for the better. Yeah. And Robert Schuller's disciple, he was a disciple of Norman Vincent Peale. You remember Norman Vincent Peale? And Norman Vincent Peale was a disciple of uh, Fostick, um, who was a disciple, and you could trace it back to Charles Finney and a lot of the issues that came out of, uh, out of that movement. And you know who? Do you know who? Robert Schuller's primary disciples were. He had two primary disciples. Rick Warren and Bill Hobbles. His two primary disciples. Rick Warren said whenever he left seminary, he went to Robert Schuller to learn how to do church. And so the modern seeker movement actually has its roots in exactly what Rich is talking about, the positive thinking uh, movement. Um, I can remember uh, when I was a young believer loving books, looking for books anywhere. I went to the flea market and bought some books, and that was very successful in, uh, in at some circumstances and others it wasn't. This is a, not a good circumstance. I, I found a Bible there, and it was uh, the Positive Thinking Bible by Norman Vincent Peale, and uh, I, can, I can remember looking through it and, and thinking, this, this is not good, and I don't even know anything. This is just not good. What else? You think of some others? Yeah, Ed? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Ah. You just come to him and your life is going to be great. That's it. God has a wonderful plan for for your for your life. Um, does God have a wonderful plan for your life? Yes, he does. It's in Jesus Christ. Um, what people meant by that was they, they started with the gospel like at the midpoint. <laughs> With all of the good news, without explaining the you know the bad news, um, God has a wonderful plan for your life in Christ because you 
you're on a collision course with with a holy God, um, and uh, you're headed for hell. Judgment is coming because you're you're a sinner. Um, I can remember I think it was Ray Comfort using that example of his famous example of of if you're on an airplane and someone gives you a parachute to sit on the airplane saying I got I've got something that's going to make your airplane ride more comfortable. So put this parachute on. You're going to have a wonderful ride. You really need it. It's going to make your, it's going to make your life better. And so you get this picture of a guy putting a parachute on, and he's trying to sit in the airplane seat, and he's thinking, this is not very comfortable at all. This is, this is even worse. And, and then he says now, uh, that, that's the way a lot of people approach the gospel. If you add Jesus to your life, you'll have a better life. He's here to fix your problems. He's here to make your ride in life more comfortable. He'll bless you. He'll show you how to have a wonderful family, how to fix your marriage, how to deal with your finances, how to think positively, whatever. And, and guess what? Sometimes whenever you become a believer, life gets even more difficult <laughs> Because now you face spiritual opposition and and otherwise, no, and then and then comfort said, "Now, now turn that around." You go to that same person and say, "This plane is going down in five minutes. Here's a parachute. It's not going to make your ride more comfortable. It's going to save your life." You, that's a little bit different approach, isn't it? And the psychologist gospel says. Add Jesus to your life, and and He'll make you a little bit more more comfortable. You think of uh, there's some other ways. The social gospel. Social gospel. Okay. Now notice everything that we're talking about. There's a measure of truth in it. There's a measure of truth that that you know the Bible tells us to. Whatsoever things are true and, and lovely and virtue, praiseworthy, think on these things. So the Bible tells us, renew your mind. And the Bible tells us that God does have a plan uh, you know, for life. But it, it leaves out a significant part or it starts at the, wrong, at the wrong point. And the Bible talks about needs that human beings have. The problem is you have to let the Bible define what is the ultimate need. Um. So there's nothing wrong with feeding hungry people and helping people. That's what you that's what you should do. We learned that just the other night in our covenant commitment service, Galatians six ten. You know, do good to all men, especially the the brethren. So do the good. It has an article there in the Greek. Do the good. It's it, you know it's the idea that you do help people. You are kind. You are those things. But but the Bible defines what is the ultimate need of, of, of man. And, and so when the social gospel, social issues, which used to be, you know, uh, what we probably would think about doing good, feeding the poor, hungry. Now social gospel has turned into, you know, uh, environmental issues or racial issues or any type of social issues. Those can actually supplant um, the gospel itself, and that can be the gospel. The good news is God came to rid the world of racism. You know, Jesus came to rid the world of hunger. Jesus came to, you know, to do what, to do whatever. So it's actually infiltrated the evangelical church, and I always think of felt needs preaching. Obviously, coming from a preaching standpoint, preach to the needs that people already feel, and then you can point them to a deeper need. So the approach of preaching, which would be touch a need, touch a heart, and then they'll be willing to listen to you. And there's some seductive, you know, some seduction in that. The problem is is people define their need rather than God defining their need. The other problem with that is the Bible says we can't really know our need. What we think is our need actually isn't our need. <laughs> We're blind. Our heart's deceitful. What we think we really, really need may not be what we really, really need. Um, the, they're also typically 
not real needs. They they make us more uh, self-sufficient. And so people end up not bridging the gap between the gospel and an actual you know, need. So people define their need rather than the Bible in that model. Psychology defines the need. Maslow's hierarchy. You know, you have basic needs. And if those basic needs aren't met, then you're not going to be open to, you know, to hear the, uh, to hear the gospel. It's, it's just ridiculous. Um, the gospel penetrates the soul. The word of God is, is sharp. It's like a two-edged sword. It, it, it interprets, it exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart and reveals our, our real need. The gospel is not about making your ride more comfortable, although Jesus is full of blessings. The gospel is about the airplane is going down, and the gospel is your parachute. Um, it's a perversion of the gospel. Teaching that Jesus came to satisfy you, meet your, your need for love, for self-esteem, to give you a healthy lifestyle, to solve your emotional emotional problems. Um, somebody turn to Matthew 16, 24 and 25, and somebody else turn to Luke. Um, 14. what Jesus practiced, that he came to satisfy you, meet your need for love and self-esteem and give you a healthy lifestyle, solve your emotional problems, Matthew 16, 24 through 26, who would be willing to read that? All right, thank you. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can man give in exchange for his soul? Look at Luke 14, 25. This is the, this is the counterpart. Now I want you to notice something in Luke 14, 25. So Jesus says that to his disciples. Deny yourself. Um, pick up your cross and follow me. You say, well, I mean, that's Jesus' disciples. Those are the people that have already decided to follow him. So that's about intense discipleship. So the people that Jesus already met their needs, now he tells them the gospel, following me is a life of self-denial. So some people will use that passage and say, well, you come to Christ, and then you get serious about Christ sometimes later. That, that's discipleship. That's a false dichotomy. It's not in the Bible. Jesus is Christ and Lord. What does Jesus say to people at large, crowds in general? Look at verse 25 of Luke 14. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not come and carry his own cross and come after me, follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he is set out to meet another in battle, does not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him and, and 20,000 or else... While the other is still far far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, what's, what's my point to these stories, Jesus says? So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not forsake, who does not give up all of his own possessions. Now, 
me give you some context here and tell you why I read this, because this is really, really significant. You don't have to read it, but in verse 15 through 24, it's, it's the, the parable of the Great Supper. You know, um, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them all to come in. Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house for Sabbath lunch. And he notices that they're all jockeying for chief seats. And he notices how they're scratching each other's backs. You know, you invite me to Sabbath lunch, I'll invite you, and then I'll put you at the head table so everybody will think that you're a great religious leader. And he exposes all of the religious leaders. And then someone in the middle of the feast says, Blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus keys in on that. He says, oh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Yes, you're right. And then he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. He's like a, a man who prepared a great supper, a great feast. And he invites all to come. And he first invites the Jews, zone, and they reject it. And then he invites everybody to come. And then our verse in verse 25 all these large crowds are following Jesus. So he gives this wide invitation. The door is wide open. Come. You're, 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 you're invited. Not just Jew, but Gentile. You've been invited by the grace of, of God to come to this feet. And there's this huge crowd of indiscriminate people following Jesus. And he breaks every church growth rule known to man. <laughs> With this large crowd... Jesus turns to them. This is the idea of the original language. The large crowds were going along. And he turned to them and said, the idea is he's walking, this large crowd, they're following him. He turns to them and speaks directly at them. And then we read what he said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yea, even his own, he cannot be my disciple. This is a call to self-denial. This is a call to follow me above everything else because now you have this large crowd and he whittles this large crowd down, this indiscriminate crowd down that, that's coming with the demands of the, of the gospel. Um, so what does Jesus say to his disciples? What does Jesus say to crowds? He says the exact same thing. Now I want you to notice that Luke at, look at Luke 15.1. Luke weaves this together beautifully. Self-righteous religious leaders, Jesus whittles them down. Large crowd, indiscriminate people following for the benefits, Jesus gives them the demands. Look who's left. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus whittles the crowd down with the demands of the gospel. What is a true gospel? And the only ones that are left are the publicly recognized bankrupt. People that know they're sinners and people that know they have a need. And they're the ones drawing near to listen to Jesus, and then he's accused of being a friend of sinners. You want Jesus to be your friend? He is a friend of sinners, but you have to realize that you're a sinner first. And the gospel exposes. And when the gospel exposes you and you really realize your need, where else can you go? <laughs> you, you only have Jesus to come to. And so you'll gladly listen to what, to what he has to, to say. So the idea that he's here to meet your need for love and self-esteem, a healthy lifestyle, emotional problem, is a perversion of the gospel. It's a different view of the person. Sound doctrine teaches that man has an active, responsible heart. The psychologist's gospel system teaches that man is a passive, reactive victim. The person has believes that there's an issue outside of them rather than inside of them. It's someone else rather than, than them. It removes responsibility. 
And without responsibility, then you don't have a need for a Savior. And then without a need for a Savior, then you try to add the gospel to your life rather than making it your life. Also, has a different view of circumstances. Sun Doctrine teaches that circumstances may be significant, but they're not determinative. You've heard my example of depravity. A nine-year-old boy raised in the projects in inner city or raised in rural West Virginia in a home that cooks meth. Um, and he picks up a gun and he carries a gun to school or gets in a fight and he shoots somebody. Is, is he any more depraved than a nine-year-old boy or a ten-year-old boy that is, you know, raised in a, you know, in a white-collar or blue-collar God-fearing home? You know, is one worse than the other? Is one more depraved than the other? And the answer is no. They both have the same depravity. But clearly, their environment can't affect them, right? So the analogy is yeast. The Bible gives the analogy of yeast being like your sin nature in dough. And if you put that yeast in in a dough ball, everybody has the same yeast in a dough ball. And like whenever my mother would make bread and she wasn't ready to bake it, she'd put that dough ball in the refrigerator and it wouldn't raise as fast, right? And then if you, she took that same dough ball and with the yeast in it, same bread, same yeast, and she put it out on the porch banister in 90-degree heat, what's going to happen to that dough ball? I mean, it's going to raise really quickly. Same amount of yeast, same bread. So we're not denying that your environment doesn't have an effect. It's just not... Determinative. And the issue is not the environment. The issue is the yeast in the dough. And only Christ can take the yeast out of, out of the, the dough. So sound doctrine teaches circumstances may be significant, but they're not determinative. This system teaches that circumstances are determinative. It emphasizes the significance of when, where, with whom. Believing these fundamentally shape an individual's life patterns. It also has a different view of the resources available to a Christian. We believe sound doctrine teaches that the blood of Christ was shed to cleanse you from guilt and condemnation. This system teaches that the blood of Christ evidences your innate worth and value and beauty such as meets your need for for self-love. It's an extreme example where there are actually theologians in Europe um, that deny penal substitution, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And they define it, they define Jesus dying on the cross as cosmic child abuse. You heard that before? The father was a child abuser, if you believe what the Bible teaches. It wasn't the father that killed Christ. It was your sin and man. So again, there's a certain level of that that there's true. You know, was your sin, part of the reason Jesus was on the cross, was it the wickedness of the Romans, the denial of the Jews? Yes, but ultimately the Bible says that God killed God. Jesus Christ was bruised. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Why? Because your fundamental primary need is a sin problem. It's, it's an eternal issue. You're here for a short period of time, and you can be here fat, dumb, and happy with all of your needs met and still go to hell and that's a problem, isn't it? This system teaches that the blood of Christ evidences your innate worth. So it's part of the issue that, that has crept in with, you know, with um, Pelagianism, Arminianism. Um, 
They start with the value of man. And they begin to say it would be unfair for God to, to not give everyone an opportunity. Did God give everyone an opportunity? In creation, he did. They would argue that it would be unfair if God doesn't send the gospel to everyone. Begin to evaluate God based on the worth of, of man. It, it turns things upside down. You know, um, it would be unfair for God to show mercy only to Israel and to pass over the, the Canaanites you know, and, and the Gentiles. Were the Israelites any less sinful than the Canaanites? No. But God chose to show mercy to the Israelites for his purposes. And the Canaanites received their just condemnation. Would the Israelites, would God have been just to condemn them? Absolutely he would have because they rejected him. See, when you start with man is basically good and God owes man something, then it gets off track You know, from there. You've got to start with God. Um, if you have, I've heard the analogy before, you know, take that Canaanite and the Israelite. You know, God is their creator, and two of them are, are drowning, you know, in the, uh, you know, they went out on the ice and they, you know, they, they fell, through, fell through the ice. These are two of God's children. They fell through the ice, and God saves one of them, and he doesn't save the other one. How cruel and wicked of God to do that. that that's, a, that's a really bad thing. And the fallacy in that philosophy is that these are two wonderful little children and, and that somehow God's passing over one and, and only saving the other. Turn that analogy around. What if these were two individuals that that, that, that father allowed to live in his home? He provided everything for them every day. And then those two individuals raised up one time killed all of his children, raped his wife, then ran out. And as they were running out, that father was, the man of that house was crying out to them, don't go out on the ice, don't go out on the ice, or you're going to fall through the ice. And they went out and they said, we don't care about you, we reject you, we, don't, we have nothing for you. And they go out on the ice and, and then they fall through the ice. And then God saves the Israelite and not the Canaanite. It turns the analogy completely around, doesn't it? You've got to start with God. You can't start with the fundamental need of, of man. Look at five. A different means and purpose for personal transformation. Sound doctrine teaches the pursuit of transformation through faith, repentance, mind renewal, obedience, and sanctification for the glory of God who is worthy. God is the one who is worthy. This system teaches one pursues transformation for greater personal satisfaction as expressed through getting needs met, finding inner healing, finding people who accept you, setting attainable goals to build self-confidence, self-esteem, self-worth, the key word there is self. Look at three. So there is a psychologized gospel. What about putting the two together? What about the Bible plus something else? The problem with Christian psychology is that one of them becomes the authority, and it's typically psychology. <laughs> Many within the church assert that human observation, scientific research, can be integrated with sacred scripture to produce a more robust body of knowledge better suited to soul care. So here is what they would say are the sources of knowledge. Revelation, the Bible. Bible is a source of knowledge. General revelation, creation and the conscience, we would agree with that. There's general revelation. God reveals himself in creation. Psalm 8, 1, 8, 3, Psalm 19, 1 through 6, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, 20, God reveals himself, even the Godhead in creation. 
the conscience, John 1, 9. Um, Christ has enlightened every, every man. You, there's enough light for everybody to be responsible. Romans 1, 19. There's a conscience. Romans 2, 14 through 15. There's a conscience. Can we agree with that? Special revelation. That's the Bible. Um, Psalm 19, 7 through 9. I think we looked at that. Didn't we look at that Psalm before? Now here's where he gets off track. Um, discoveries from human behavioral studies. Empirical evidence. You can add that to the mix. If I study human behavior, I can discover certain things. Rationalism. Theories derived from, from mere reason. Intuition. Now notice all of these different sources of knowledge. Revelation, specific and general. The Bible says those aren't equal, are they? They're not equal to Scripture because of depravity. Jeremiah 17, 9, Titus 1, 15 through 16. The problems with seeking to integrate these sources of knowledge for, for soul care, these sources of knowledge are not on an equal footing. That's, that's the problem. They're not on an equal footing. Discoveries from human behavior, theories derived from mere reason, intuition, they're not on an equal footing with, with revelation. Human observation and sacred scripture are not peers. One will always interpret the other. Let me give you an example of that. By some, page 114, by some, human observation, the earth appears to be billions of years old. This observation is then used to interpret the text of special revelation. You see that all the time, right? This is exactly what people do with psychiatry or with human or with rational thinking. Well, I have a rational mind. God gave me a brain. I need to think. I have intuition. Yes, you are a rational being. Yes, you have intuition. But that's subordinated to the Bible. When, when your rationale and your intuition contradicts Scripture, then you yield to Scripture. Same thing happens with behavioral studies. The Bible plus behavioral studies. Well, guess which one ends up becoming in the primary? Well, we've observed this. Freud said that. Psychiatry says this. Science says this. Therefore, we reinterpret the Bible. We actually use that to interpret what God meant. Because, I mean, after all, Abraham or Moses or the Apostle Paul was way before the scientific discoveries we have today of Freud or whoever it is. And so, he didn't mean that. He didn't have that knowledge. We now have that knowledge. So you have to add that to the mix. You see how that supplants the Bible as the primary authority. Human observation has just been raised to a position of greater authority than what the Scripture explicitly states. So human observation and Scripture are not peers. Everything is subordinate to the Bible because everything's subordinate to God because the Bible comes from God and God is the creator and he tells us who we are and what we are and everything we need to know. Look at, look at two, why this is a problem. Seek to try to integrate these things. Even what we understand is skewed because we're fallen. <laughs> I mean... Taking human observation and putting it on the same level or even appealing to it as an authority, putting it on the same level as the Bible is, is flawed because of what we know about our ability to think right. It's skewed. Romans 1, 18 through 32 teaches that humanity is committed to suppressing the truth of God. What is observable in creation is then reinterpreted 
to fit a narrative of our own making defined by a moral commitment to autonomy. If you don't understand that man is fundamentally broken, you're not going to understand that the conclusions that man draws can be fundamentally skewed or flawed. Um, and those aren't things that you want to put alongside the Bible and trust in. Um, they're gaping holes. Thoughts? Yeah, Ed? Um, the integrated way is never complete. It's never absolute. Because if you look back and say, I know more now than I did a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. then a couple hundred years from now, someone's going to say, we more know now than what they knew in you know, 2019, yeah. and therefore things are a little bit different. Yes. So it's, it's ever-changing that way. Right. That's absolutely true. And, and a lot of the same theories just regurgitate, you know, uh, just keep rejecting over and, and over. So, yes? One of the local radio stations is saying that uh, using counseling is okay. It doesn't mean that you're a weak Christian, mm-hmm. but you can use the Bible and counseling mm-hmm. to get through hard times. And this is a Christian radio station. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, to me, it's, it's kind of soured my stomach mm. to, to what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, if you put anything alongside, you know, what it de- probably would depend on what they mean by counseling. Um, unfortunately, they probably mean what you think they mean. <laughs> um, they don't put biblical in front of Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, talk to Jesus and your therapist. So, um <coughs> So, I I met a guy that that I haven't seen for quite some time, and um, it was really sad. It was a it was a case study in in what buying into this system will will do. I hadn't seen him for for quite some time, and um, I could tell he wasn't doing well just by his countenance and his look. I mean, he just he looked really rough, like sin was was having. Wreaking havoc in his life, and um, and he was just talking about how he figured out, you know, his problem. Now he, you know, he had uh, he finally figured out after his whole life all of his struggles. He he'd been diagnosed with adult ADHD, and um, and that the reason that his marriage was falling apart was he he finally figured out that his wife was bipolar. Um, and he just went on and on and on, um, and uh, you know about the the actual issue and and the and the problem. And he had been to a number of Christian counselors, and that's how he figured this figured this out. And um, and it was just really sad because there's nothing that I could say. There, I had no answer to the Bible. Uh, uh, in the Bible because he, he wouldn't hear those answers because now he has a disorder or now he has something else that that negates, you know, what I what I have to say. And in those cases you have to wait until you try, but you have to wait until typically suffering comes and people come to an end of themselves where their ears are you know, their ears are open again. But um but yeah it's bad. Totally, it's exactly the same. Satan's Satan's plan is the same over here, John. All of this that we've been talking about reminds me of Genesis three, where mm-hmm. you have like Adam and Eve just totally denying what God said mm-hmm. from his mouth. Yeah. Sure. It is. I take part in this stuff, you know? It is. So. 
yeah, this is not an us-them. This is a we, isn't it? <laughs> it's just how it comes out. Um, and uh, you nailed it. I mean, that's that's the fundamental the fundamental issue is is authority. And um, I mean, it's the same issue in Catholicism in a religious in religious realm. Put the Bible on the same level as church dogma. And and they say it, the Bible has a seat at the table, but but church dogma, church history has also has a seat at the table as as if it's equal. And besides, the Bible came from the church. The church produced the Bible. So Mother Church produced, you know, produced an offspring being being the Bible. So guess what happens when you put the Bible alongside anything else? Which one is going to rule or interpret? Well, man is going to make sure that his actually rules or interprets. Which wonder how you get how they got around like the statement that Peter made in his epistle long before the Catholic Church ever was even a thought that says Paul's writings are scripture equal to that which we have in our Old Testament. Right. It's self-authenticating. It's self-authenticating. It is. Yeah. Larry? One thing that's really <clears throat> sad and grievous with all of this, and many, many of you have run into this too, but I'm dealing with somebody, uh, one of the great Kissinger's uh, right now, who has reached out to me because of family, and they're psychologized totally. Um, they've been institutionalized for a while, deep depression, all kinds of, of uh, difficulties. And of course, they have been, um, they have been diagnosed That's the real. You run into that all the time. Larry just nailed the evil in the system. If you remove the need, which a disorder or otherwise did, then you remove the need for Christ, and then there's no room for Him. You explain it away. Mark, did you pass something out for us? Yeah, I did. I was going to uh, didn't interrupt you. That's uh, John Street's uh, thing on immigration. Okay. Yeah. You don't have to understand all the nuances of psychology to, to be a biblical minded. I, I'm just thinking that since it's a bigger picture of the spiritual problem, we need to, if we're not pursuing the Word of God on a regular basis, we're always defaulting to the toxins of the world. <coughs> so it, you can be psychologized by default because your heart resonates in the flesh with the toxins of the world, which is that that self-focused bad anthropology. But the only thing I can say is in order to get help is that you need to saturate yourself all the time with the mm-hmm. Word. Otherwise, you're always drifting away from the truth that you want to know. That's good. Yeah? yeah just I, things I've been hearing, it, part, of, part of when we say, hey, you know, science is always, this is science, psychology is science, and it's always sort of shifting. But the flip side of that is, huge criticisms of the Bible. You know, it's a product of, and I think I heard something that was patriarchal, mm-hmm. cisgender oppression. So you got to get all the stuff in there. Right. you got to right. little LGBT, right. you know, sprinkles on Absolutely. top. And um, patriarchy, that's always good for, you know, a good criticism because yep. that means it was just a bunch of guys sitting around right. figuring out how to oppress people. Specifically and, uh, women. So then you... you Take away the authority of scripture yeah, because sure. it was just a cultural right. artifact of five thousand years ago, yeah. or two thousand, or one thousand, yep. depending how bad your history yeah. is. And um, yeah. yeah, so I mean, we've got to stand on the authority, amen, and not let that become because the criticisms are. I mean, you take a Bible class at Liberty, you're going to get good academic scholarship. Now includes solid criticism. Yeah, yeah, but 
I've seen some who just stop there and they yeah. go, yep, see? Right. The criticism's there. This Bible is really, right. it's, you know. Yep. You nailed like it. a scientific journal from, from 200 years ago that said we should put the leeches on. It's a, it's a yeah, Neanderthal. Um, it's, it's an issue of authority. And the, and the soft sciences are subjective hear what Mark just said? That, that's important. Um, soft science, which would be psychology, psychiatry, would fall into that. Um, is subjective, massively subjective. Uh, there are things that are concrete and observable. We still have a problem because we don't always interpret what we observe properly because the authority says that we're that were corrupt, but we're talking about an area that is is massively subjective, even in its observations. You know how people think, why they do what they do. Well, the Bible tells us specifically, um, but they'll categorize a, a number of those. Of course, there's three sciences, and we sort of agree with two of those. One of them is statistical psychology. Nobody goes there and pays with science. That's George Barna and all the surveys and trying to figure out what the trends are and how cultures impacted man. And so we're, we're open to that. We're listening to those things. They're, they're surveyed and they do their work on it. And then there's descriptive psychology. That's those who coordinate the DSM of all man's behaviors. So we don't really have, we don't really have anything to say against that either. They're, they're observing how man's behaving and they categorize that very has a different authority, provides different answers. Um, yeah, Jim? Well, when people uh, reject the authority of the Scripture, basic things like day and age, mm-hmm. which a lot of Christians accept today. Yeah. Yeah. You have to find some excuse or reason for why the Bible doesn't mean what it clearly says it means. Mm-hmm. And it's then you go to, well, I mean, if you... You know, their argument is if you believe that God created the world in seven, you know, literal days, six literal days, and seventh day He rested, then, then like what Dave was saying, I mean, you, you're just like with medicine and leeches. You know, you're 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 a, you're a Neanderthal. You're you know you're you're not educated, you know, and so it's the same deal. So, yeah. Question back there. A lot of them out there. But it also brings out the, the scripture that says man's ever learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look at technological advances yeah. that's happened even within yeah. a few short years of where we are today. We were just yeah. talking before church about it hasn't been long since we had dialed telephones. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Dialed telephones, but, but all of that technological advance has not brought man one inch closer to the truth of what the Bible reveals. Mm-hmm. Amen. It's actually, in some senses, taken us further away. Yeah, in some ways. Well, Mark gave you an article. If you didn't get the one from last week, I think Clay tried to hand it out on the way out the door. It's, it's up here, Critiquing Modern Integrationists. This is about the late uh, Dr. David Pallison. It's great too. Um, it'll give you some some things to uh, to think through. I love yeah. libraries that you can like cut out. It talks about how it's just a little illustration 
on how man, uh, how psychology interprets our problems, mm-hmm. and how the, ver- the Bible interprets those things. And it's just a little thing I cut out and use in my Bible. Great. And I put them on the table for everybody. It really helps me in counseling. Excellent. Make sure you get one of those before uh, before you leave. So next Tuesday we'll get an email. We're going to be eating. You can share, be thinking about some of the things that you've learned from Grace and Granite this uh, this semester. Thank you, men, for uh, the blessing that you are to me every Tuesday morning. It's a privilege to get in the Word together. Let me pray. Father, how a great a debtor I am to grace. And, um, Lord, when we talk about these things, I... Uh, uh, I always want to guard against pride um, that somehow we're smarter than everybody else. Um, even that temptation can creep into in, into our heart. Uh, even knowing what we've talked about today, apart from from you and your saving grace, we would we would be we would be hopeless and we would be lost. But Lord, humility is uh, is not is not knowing or failing to know where we stand. Um, humility is not being indecisive or or fuzzy about the truth. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, you were the most humble human that ever walked the earth, and yet uh, and yet you you were the the literal embodiment of of truth. And so we're we're humbled. By your grace, we stand on your truth. You're the authority, and we love you. Teach us. Um, help us not to blame ourselves or, or help us not to blame um, others or or fail to, to see ourselves the way that, that you do. And um, 